Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightning, and I am here with Zambezi River. Uh, our guest today is another Racine pastor, uh, Pastor John Reckley. Welcome, Pastor Reckley. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So one of the questions we ask, John, is where have you served in your ministry? That's kind of an easy answer because I've only served two places. First, at, here in Racine for the last, what, 26 years, since 96. And uh, prior to that, I was assigned out of the seminary to Florence, Wisconsin, uh, just a little burg up in Florence County, all 4,400 people worth. So, And you are not a Packer fan, are you? That is correct. Yeah. That is correct. I am not a Packer fan. I am. Yes, I do claim I'm a Detroit Lion fan, but uh, it it becomes a little hard treading at times, for sure. Hey, but you're you're probably really excited that a Detroit Lions former quarterback won the Super Bowl. Yes, I think mo- me and most of Detroit was, so, or so most you, of Michigan was. So you guys claim that, that as a Super Bowl win? Of course, of course. <laughs> Stafford was our guy. He tanked last night. Did you see that? They said he got seven sacks, I believe it was, for the Rams op- in the Rams opening game, and they said that hadn't happened since he was in Detroit. So, <laughs> so he's bringing a little bit of Detroit out west. Evidently, evidently. So, what was ministry like in Florence of forty four hundred people? I'm going to guess the congregation was kind of small. How long were you there? What was it, what was it like? Sure, sure. As you said, yeah, it was a small congregation, about 150 people. Um, it, it, as we mentioned, 4,400 people in the county. Um, there were more deer in the in the county, so you can kind of get the idea that there was it was more of a recreational type area, retirement type area, that kind of thing too. Um, and so it was. Uh, I would say it was a slower ministry from the standpoint that not nearly as many meetings. Um, you could; it was a good place to raise kids. Our our oldest three boys were they were actually born in um, Iron Mountain, Michigan, just across the border. So they're native Michiganders, like their dad, I guess. And so a couple of them are stuck with being Lions fans, like me too. But that's beside the point. Um, yeah, ministry ministry there was um, just being able to kind of serve people with the with the basic necessities and reaching out to them, you know, as as much as possible, uh, doing the basic things, you know, that basic catechism class and funerals, weddings, even those were not a lot. So is, is, was that right on the border with the UP then? Yes. Okay. Yes. In fact, Florence County is on Highway Two, and just north of um, Florence, you could we could actually walk to the border, which is bordered by a river, but we couldn't get across that way. It was only a uh, half a mile north, but getting over into Iron Mountain was maybe a fifteen-minute drive, something like that. So how? Yeah. So it's it's up there then. It is up there. Because yeah. I remember one of the, I think actually the first call I had out of Kentucky was up north near the UP, and it was two smaller congregations that shared a pastor, and they were talking to me about 
all their winter weather sports, you know, the, the skiing and uh, sure. the snowmobiling and ice skating and all this stuff. And they were trying to appeal to me because I grew up in Wisconsin. And the, as they were talking about all this stuff on the first phone call, I was thinking, I love it in Kentucky. It snows once a year here. <laughs> I don't think I, I, I want to go to all of that again. And then these were small, old congregations that one was 101 years old and the other congregation was 99 years old. And for their centennial, they were pretty excited because they were going to get indoor plumbing. <laughs> that for 99 years, they used the outhouse. Wow. So just a little bit different ministry. Yeah. Yeah. We did have a indoor plumbing oh, that's good. In, in Florence. But, <laughs> but Tipler, which is just west in the county... Um, oh, about 20 miles or something like that. Tipler did not have indoor plumbing. They had an outhouse and a small, much smaller church and church building. What, so what would be the biggest... Um, it, I'm sure it wasn't a tourist hub, but uh, if, if tourists would go there, what would be the biggest draw? It was It was outdoor sports, just like you were just explaining. Michael, that um, it had, uh, you know, hunting was huge. Uh, everybody around there deer, were deer hunters, and it drew a lot of deer hunters, too, uh, to the area. Um, in fact, we had a guy, he was a teacher from Marinette that would come over on Thanksgiving Eve, and he would uh, uh, say, hey, can I, can I camp out in your church basement? So he did. He camped out and, and went hunting uh, over the weekend. So, um, yeah, snowmobiling was huge, ice fishing. I did some of those things myself. I'm not a huge outdoor sports person, but it, winter sports person, that is. But uh, we, I was able to do that with some of the locals and, and uh, enjoyed it. So... What's the draw to the ministry here in Racine since you've been here over two decades and it's a population of at least 20 times that of Florence? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I wonder uh, because we, when we left, we kind of said, you know, this would be a great place to come back to. We'd love to come back here, maybe a place to retire. Um, the uh, the draw to uh, Racine for us was was centered a lot around kids, um, for sure. Having boys that were four and two at the time, uh, a four-year-old and twin, twin two-year-olds at the time, um, they were a big draw to coming to, to down to Racine, knowing that we had a school here, that there's a high school, too, if we're here that long. And uh, another thing was I, I thought growing in the ministry, too, to be able to come and uh, perhaps be an associate, which I, which I was able to do and have been able to do for most of my years here. And uh, I believe that was, those were some of the biggest things that drew me, you know, to, to Racine. Did, did you know that uh, he and I had a relationship before I moved to Racine? I did not know that. Yeah, I was... Uh... A singer in the MLC College Choir, and we sang at First Evan, and my roommate and I were hosted by the Reckley family, and I was I was dating the woman I'm now married to, but uh, at any at any rate, um, 
Do, do you do you remember that uh, that evening? Oh, I do. I do very well. I think we might have served you brandy old fashions, did we? Oh, I, or did I, I fail on he that? He introduced me to the old fashioned, and I was I was a, either a junior or a senior in college, so I was of course of age, uh, and uh, I got to find out what an old fashioned was like. See, John introduced me to brandy old fashions. Uh, I don't know if it was Southern Comfort old fashions. That's what I drink now. Uh, and I remember uh, John's former associate, now retired uh, pastor, Nathan Pope. Uh, he lived downtown at the Parsonage next to First Evan. And when we first moved in, he had a party for some of the staff and so forth. And he called me up to see what I what I like to drink so that he had the liquor on hand. And, you know, Shelly and I learned to like Southern Comfort Old Fashions from John. And so I told Nathan, you know, Southern Comfort Old Fashioned Sweet. And he said, oh, I have that because that's what the ladies drink. I said, oh, that's, that's awful. But it was pretty funny. Uh, so uh, we share a school. So now it was Epiphany. And now it's Water of Life shares the school with First Evan. So, John, do you know the history of, first of all, before we talk about the uniqueness of the school, uh, why Epiphany uh, came away from First Evan? Well, of course, everybody okay. knows why, right? Um, First Evan was building a parsonage at the time, and uh, it seemed to get a be a little bit too costly for for some of the members, and the, so they several of them had broken away from from the church. Now I know that's that's the first Evan side it's of things, right. isn't it? And I know that's where you're going with it. Um, but one one interesting aspect that I'm not sure if we've talked about before, but the house that we live in right now was actually owned by First Evan years ago, and. Uh, after World War II, a guy that was connected to the church bought that property from the church. But I, my understanding from minutes that I could have gone back and looked is that all along the church at some point said, we want to, we want to have a mission church somewhere on the south side. And that kind of plays into what yeah. your, your version is, right? So, right. So that's the, I tell people... Uh, that there's two versions of the story of why Epiphany started from First Evan. One is the the version that you said, John, of people being upset and then moving to the edge of town. Back then, it was two miles away. But then the sanctified story is that First Evan was first German Lutheran downtown. And in 1927, there were more English-speaking people, and so they wanted to do outreach to the edge of town. And so they started a mission church, and it was in a storefront. And then they built this church a year later. And then they built it uh, in the middle of a block in the neighborhood that was just being built. They made it look on the outside like an English Tudor house to be attractive to the other people in the neighborhood. And then the name of the church, because your church was first German, and because our church started during the Epiphany season in January of 1927 to English-speaking people, the official name of our church used to be the English Evangelical Lutheran Church of the Epiphany. So it was a mouthful. Yeah, that was. <laughs> uh, 
but uh, but then it was always called Epiphany, and uh, you know that was a really nice idea to start in the middle of the block, but. 90 plus years later, it's not such a good idea to, to have a church in the middle of a block where no one knows where it is. Well, let me just add to that, that uh, we got our recording started a little bit late today. And uh, part of that is because um, I was trying to navigate all of the different school buses and uh, crossing guards that were backing up traffic. So it, it, I'm doing this on the recording now to explain my lateness to uh to Zambezi River over here. I thought you maybe just got lost. Uh, I, I pretty much felt like it. It was it was quite the backup more than once. So then, John, I think it's a unique situation. More and more of our churches are doing what we've done you know, over four decades ago of combining the school, or two churches working together for the school, if you want to talk about that unique situation of two churches operating a school, both the challenges and the benefits of it. Yeah, I, you know, it's kind of neat to see, like you said, uh, a lot of churches are catching up to what was done. Actually, that'll be about 50 years ago, I think next year, right? Okay. We, we just uh, um, just found that out recently that we'll be celebrating the 50th anniversary of the school next uh, school year. And so, yeah, there were there were some for, certainly some forward thinking people at that time that just kind of said, hey, you know what? Uh, we have smaller schools. Why not combine our resources to be able to do that and to be able to have a bigger school? And and it's been it served as a blessing uh, for for many years. Um, certainly, the blessings that come as a result is an enhanced education and opportunities for the kids. Right? I they they have more opportunities. I think they'd have at a somewhat larger school than a, a really tiny school. Um, in all areas of, of education, I think, and extracurriculars too. Um, challenges certainly over the years have been simply communication, I think, has been a big one, hasn't it? Um, that we just, um, when you have two different, well, communication within a congregation alone is huge. Then you put two congregations together and to, to operate this entity we call a school and it's even more difficult. I think about Shoreland, actually, where you're at, right? So that um, we have how many churches that kind of have input into that, mm-hmm. and uh, and and so anytime you, you combine uh, different entities together, it it adds for challenges. But boy, it's I I've only really seen the blessings that have come as a result. Yeah, there've been challenges, but I think the blessings outshine the uh, the challenges that are there. I, I just wanted to ask, uh, since both of you are Racine, past, Racine Wells pastors, um, I, noticed there, I noticed there is uh, a stone, uh, like a foundation stone by uh, your church for the school that says uh, it's, it's in German, and it's, uh, it, it, says, it says Schule on it. Uh, I can't remember the exact wording, but in, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, um, w- wasn't there a school before uh, WLS that uh, existed, affiliated with First Evan? 
That that's correct. We've had First Even has had a school had had a school off and on through the years. It it had opened and closed and reopened, um, and they had reopened at the time um, when uh, Pastor R.J. Pope had come. And uh, and then decided to to combine with the Epiphany School at that time. Are, but, are we talking the year when you say over the years? You're talking like the early 20th century, uh, early 1900s. I uh, think school even started in the late 1800s okay. as well. Because how old is um, First Evan? First Evan was uh, founded in 1849, so we're we're getting close to 175 here. That we're we're actually pointing ahead to celebrate that in a little bit. Um, so yeah, there's been a, a lot of things going on through the years, including, um, you may not know this, and some some others may not know this, but uh, Racine Lutheran High School um, got its start in our school building. The school building that we have right now used to have three stories, and uh, the third story had this auditorium on it primarily, um, and I think maybe some other things, but primarily that. And uh, at some time in mid mid twentieth century, they they took off the the third story uh, to what it is basically now. So so things have altered significantly through the years. Yeah, and then Epiphany had its own school. The church started in nineteen twenty seven, and then the school started in nineteen twenty eight. A three room school. The rooms that we use for the office we're in now and the nursery next door and upstairs, our fellowship area, the friendship room, those were the three classrooms and then added on half of a building. Then another part of the building that we use for our early childhood campus uh, before we merged too. Uh, And then, you know, I've heard through the years too, John, that the pastors before us at our two churches didn't always get along. And then that caused some of the members to not always get along. And so one of the first things we did when I was here is our daughter Belle was born uh, about two or three years after I got here is John is the godfather of our youngest daughter. So we have to like each other. (laughs) Uh, One thing I wanted to mention too, just talk about real briefly, John, is I think it's unique in that next week we have your son Ben. As a seminary student, uh, he's a middler, a so, uh, second year at the seminary, and he's going to be our guest next week. And uh, But he had some serious health problems when he was born, if you want to talk about that. Sure, yeah. Uh, ben was born with uh, congenital heart defects. Um, in fact, his heart was, we often say his heart was so messed up, it worked right at the time. At least that's kind of how the doctor explained it to us. He had several medical issues with the heart. Um, he had various procedures within the la- first few years of his life, um, and that, that nothing really took permanently. Some kind of bided the time until the next procedure and that kind of thing. Um, and then in 2006, um, he had a heart transplant, um, September 22nd. Yeah. It's my parents' anniversary. They just celebrated, or they're celebrating 60th, their 60th this year. We were just back in Saginaw to celebrate it. So we kind of mark those days together, which is kind of neat. Uh, and they do too. So, 
but it's been uh he's been good ever since put it that way he goes to the doctor oh, it was at at first it was more frequent now it's about 3 or 4 times a year i believe it is he has to go back to children's hospital his wife kids him that he's still going to a kids hospital <laughs> at 23 years old but um they're in the process probably after He's out of the seminary to transfer him to uh, to adult care. Um, and right now it's primarily maintenance as far as that goes with the heart. He can certainly fill you in a lot more on that. But uh, they check medication levels all the time. They che- Every year they they do either a, an MRI of the heart just to see how things are or a biopsy of the heart just to see if there's any rejection and so on. And so far, so good. It's been good since 2006 for the most part for him so he's been healthy and thankfully he can serve um, God willing in the ministry someday should we get into the gospel lesson Jeremy sure today's gospel comes from Luke chapter 15 all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus to hear him But the Pharisees and the experts in the law were complaining, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. He told them this parable. Which one of you, if you had 100 sheep and lost one of them, would not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that was lost until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls together his friends and his neighbors, telling them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who do not need to repent. Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, would not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, because I have found the lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, John, what was ironic about the statement that the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered to Jesus of saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them? Well, what was ironic was they were sinners too, weren't they? I mean, it's kind of evident there that um, they didn't even see that either, did they? they didn't understand um, that they were on the same level, um, like Paul says, "Chief of sinners, though I be." Right, um, and uh, they they were on the same par with that. So, Jeremy, who then was moved to hear Jesus, and what's the difference between that group of people and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Well, what do you mean by here? Because they they were all obviously. In the vicinity, uh, and I think what you're talking about is um, the the people who were taking his words seriously. It's basically what right. you mean, right? Yeah, and uh, that that was it was those people who had led sinful lifestyles, um, and and let's not let's not poo poo what they had done. Uh, it was it was certainly great offense against God, um, and and harmful to themselves and those that they loved. Uh, and yet it was those people who most of all felt their need for a Savior and, and found the most meaning in in Christ's words. So why did the Jews 
dislike the tax collector so much? Uh, because they were they collected taxes. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, and, which and, and, which I mean to this day, yeah, it's, it doesn't matter what era of history we're talking about. Uh, you you don't like paying taxes. Yeah, they probably get upset if they were hiring eighty seven thousand new tax collectors. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, but they, because they were working for the Romans, and so they felt that you know they were it was a betrayal to their heritage. But what's interesting too is that uh, the Greek construction here of that they were coming to Jesus to hear them, you know, it implies an ongoing activity. It wasn't just a one-time thing that they were the ones gathering to hear him. And I think uh, these tax collectors and sinners were gathering to hear Jesus, like you said, Jeremy, because they wanted to hear him. Uh, they wanted to be called to repentance. They knew there was something wrong and missing in their lives. But I also think that the Pharisees and the uh, teachers of the law kept coming to hear Jesus more to uh, see where Jesus was at and so they could find out what was wrong with this guy. And so they were, they were gathering around too. Eventually, too, wouldn't you say they were they were of course trying to do that to trap Jesus in any way that they could, exactly. right? To yeah. to to uh, get him in trouble. So then, John, what does it mean to be lost and found in these two parables? And uh, the the third parable is in part of this text of the lost son. So there's three parables sure. one right after the other of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. So what's the whole point of being lost and found? I think it, it, it basically boils down to, to, to faith versus no faith, doesn't it? Um, the, the, aren't the found those who, who have faith? The, the lost are those who don't have faith, or maybe who have strayed from the faith too, right? Um, so, so that could be uh, any, any number of people. Um, and I think, I think in looking at the Pharisees, over time at least, they, they're ones that, wouldn't you say, probably strayed away from the faith, um, at least many of them, not all of them, certainly. And, and you're right, um, but it, it wouldn't have been an obvious thing. It sure. would, like it, it was, at least in, uh, on paper or publicly, they, nobody could have said, oh, you are an unbeliever or you have strayed from the faith um, because they looked outwardly very like, like church-going people, like... Uh, uh, that they they were they gave their they gave their donations uh, to to charity and uh, and yet it was it was Jesus who saw their hearts and had to say you hypocrites that the, you're I'm agreeing with everything you're saying and uh, just trying to point out that it would not have been obvious that they were sure. falling away yeah in today's uh, picture it would have been people uh, that are dressed up for church their suit they're dressed. Uh, in wearing a dress, they're there every Sunday. They're active in their committees and leadership. They're giving and they're tied to their offerings, and yet they really don't believe. They're hypocrites. So then, Jeremy, what do these parables teach about God's love? What's the point of these parables? The I would say the diligence um, that with which the shepherd and then the woman goes about uh, just dropping everything. And saying my top priority is the lost one, is the lost thing, the lost sheep or the lost coin, and uh, 
she she sweeps the house and searches carefully, lights a lamp to, you know, you could think of today p- turning on a flashlight, looking in every corner to find that lost uh, item. And, uh, and the shepherd, uh, even forgetting about the other valuables that he has and saying, I'm going to go find the one that is lost. That is that is the love of our Heavenly Father toward us that he says, uh, I'm going to go to great lengths to bring you back and win you over for myself. So then let's apply that for both of you guys, and I'll add something in too, is what does this teach us as pastors? You know, John, for the people in our area that you and I minister to, our own members and our school, uh, school families and students in our community, for us as pastors, and then Jeremy, what about for you and the students that you minister to at Shoreland? Because we are the shepherds of the Good Shepherd, that the Good Shepherd left sure. the sheep to go find them. What does this mean for us as the shep- the under-shepherds? I think we're the ones that, that try to model his love, for one, and, and want to to pursue what, what he does to have a, a heart like him to be able to reach out the lost, whatever that might be, whether it's somebody who has never heard of Christ, but oftentimes for our congregations it means people who have who do know Christ who have have wandered from that who were who maybe we've confirmed or married or whatever it might be and and yet there we find them um, on the outside looking in so to speak it, it at least so it appears honestly uh, you asked me to speak about this from the high school perspective but I'm more minded right now to, to think about the um, the time that I've had in the parish, which is, uh, I, I, I'm not saying I did a good job of this, but it was something that I tried to prioritize, which is uh, the old saying uh, that, that maybe both of you heard at the seminary, I know I heard it at the seminary, was uh, a home-going pastor makes for a church-going people. That it, if you are, like, as a pastor, if you are like the, the shepherd here or the woman searching for the coin, and you say, I'm going to take the first step and, and go out to uh, the, the homes of, like you said, uh, people who already know Jesus, my parishioners, uh, and try to get in their homes, not, not just when I first arrive there to do the every member visits, but on a regular basis, be, be visiting them and seeing what their circumstances are like. And, and, then, and then when I preach... Uh, hopefully I can relate better to, to them with my words in Bible classes. Um, but, uh, but then also with the, uh, with the lost, reaching out with the lost, that you don't just say, well, hey, the church doors are open, so why don't you just wander in? That, that you actually go out and say, hey, the church doors are open, so why don't you wander in? You know, and I grew up on a farm, so I have the unique perspective when I look at these things. Because I'm not a coin collector, but I did have sheep growing up. And, you know, I think of three types of sheep that we had on the farm. We had Ben. You know, Ben was a gentle sheep that we had in the barn. You could pat him. He'd lick you and so forth. So if he got out, we would go look for him. Then we had the rest of the sheep, and they're just regular dumb sheep. You know, they would take every opportunity to sneak out through an open gate or through a broken fence, and we'd have to go do, go find them. That happened numerous times and bring them back. 
And then we had one sheep, a ewe, so a female one, and you could not turn your back on her. She never had a name, but if I had to name her, it would be a demon spawn. Because if you ever turned your back on her, she would lay you out. She would come up from behind and hit you in the back, and you would go flying. And then she would stand over me or my sisters, uh, like in that hero, Marvel hero pose, like she just defeated you. If that one got out, I really wasn't so excited to go get her. But that's the kind of sheep that we have that we, we want to go out after. That there's going to be the people that you know we love and that love us, but they've been lost, like a Ben. There's going to be the sheep that we minister to in our culture that are the post-Christian people, because we live in a post-Christian society, and the majority of our people in, in our communities, they're just lost. And then there's going to be the people that are just downright mean. You know, I think of one of the guys that I was asked to visit that was the father of one of our members. I knew he was not a nice guy. And when I came to the hospital to visit him, I could hear him say to his daughter as I was walking down the hallway, why is Pastor Zarling here? I'm going to hell anyhow. Hmm. And yet you and I were called to minister to them. And all of you as listeners were called to reach out to everyone. You just got me thinking about um, a couple of things with the sheep analogy that Jesus uses here. One of them is... uh, I had a student last year who uh, is uh, he, he his parents run a farm um, and uh, they take care of sheep and when I talked about this in class he 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 had a way of putting it I'm going to try to catch his wording exactly right um, it, it was uh, sheep are always trying to find the most ingenious way to kill themselves. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way of do- saying it. And uh, and and the other thing is, it, it, when I li- listen to your affectionate talk about them, it also makes me think about all of the ways in the Bible that sheep are described, and and you really get the impression, don't you, that um, they were they were kind of the family pet. Like today, we might have dogs or cats, and it was like if you if you look at uh, the Old Testament when Nathan came to David, uh, he described this little sheep that the uh, poor man had and said, oh, he slept in, the, uh, slept in the man's arms and was like a daughter to him. Wasn't that like how we talk about our cats and dogs today? You're, you're a fur daddy, you're a fur mommy. Um, uh, and and uh, it's, when, I, when I listened to you, yeah, that you had the one in your farm that, that they could pet and the one on your farm that was a little more docile and, um, and, then, and then the ones that we talk about dogs and cats that way too, the, the one that, is uh, just antisocial and, uh, you know, um, and then and then you take that. And it, the reason I'm bringing this up is because um, why in the world would, if, if it's just purely a business investment, if your flock of sheep is just purely your way of making money, you're going to leave 99 of them behind and go look for one. That's that's bad business dealing. Uh, there must be more to it than that. It, it must be that there is a, a an affection and a, a a pet kind of a relationship that says, "I want that one back because that one is, you know, special to me." And that's that's ultimately how Jesus looks at us. 
So your student that talked about how sheep try and find ingenious ways of killing themselves reminds me of a video, and our listeners can go and try and find it on YouTube, Google it, uh, that it's a video of another, in another country of this sheep that's caught in a crevice in the ground. The ground just had opened up, and it's probably about a foot and a half, two feet wide, and it's just stuck. It's level with the ground. Its feet are just dangling in the air. And this little boy and his sister, they, they're there, and they pull it up. And it with all their effort, they pull it out of the crevice. It's so excited. It starts jumping over the crevice back and forth, and then 20 feet down, falls into the crevice again. <laughs> that's, that's sheep, and that's us, though, that we get rescued we, uh, from our crevice, from uh, the devil's traps, from when we transgress, when we go when we cross the line where God tells us don't go when we trespass when we when God says that's out of bounds for you when we do it accidentally when we do it on purpose and yet God calls us back through repentance and then John when we do repent there's rejoicing what is Jesus talking about with that rejoicing well i i think he's he's basically just saying that that's his heart right that that um the rejoicing is he that's that's what he wants for all of us is to come to be saved to be come to a knowledge of of the truth to repent of our sin and to to know that he's our god he's our savior and um that rejoicing as as it talks about in in this and i i know we'll probably touch on this later but um it's not just him, but it it's it go it's it catches on. All of heaven rejoices, right? Um, the angels rejoice, um, and and as a result, he invites us to rejoice with him too, doesn't he? Um, he he wants us to rejoice over not only our own salvation, which is is the biggest thing for us personally, but then for every other sinner that uh, that is going to be able to share heaven with us. And so John and I, our churches are having a outdoor worship service this week. Well, it's supposed to be outdoor until we had a 90% chance of downpour of rain on Sunday. And so now our outdoor service has moved indoor. Thankfully, First Evan's large enough to have everything, everyone in there and then the gym to have the meal in there. And, and I'm praying, John, that we're going to have a lot of our school families that we're reaching out to and maybe a lot of our own members that have taken the summer off or just taken the last two years off because I'm talking to in my role as a mission board chairman and the call that I have uh, to, to Juno and then seeing our own ministry here, maybe it's the same for you, is there's just people that have absented themselves from the means of grace ministry of our churches the last few years that they were kind of off and on and then everything happened with covid whether they were afraid or they used them as an excuse to watch online and then aren't really connected to the church anymore whatever it is hopefully our invitations this sunday to get them back in church will be the impetus for us to be able to rejoice right yeah that they're that they're back you bet so, so Jeremy, you kind of touched on this, but I want you to build on it. 
I think it's easy for us as pastors, as leaders, because uh, I heard your your principal, or uh, not principal, your president, Mr. Scriver, he was excited, and rightfully so, that you've had the, the largest student body at Shoreland ever. And I think for us as pastors, we can get excited talking about uh, the number of people, members that we have in our church. And yet, you said it before, this isn't a good economy of your time and effort of leaving 99 to go after one. What's the real big point of it's not about the, the, the numbers we have in our school or high school or church. What's it really about? What's ministry? What's the focus of our ministry? That people know that Jesus, God wants people to know that uh, he is passionate about them as individuals, that, uh, that he seeks, he seeks the, uh, and saves the lost uh, one by one. You don't, you don't get into heaven on a group plan. You, <laughs> you, don't, you, you don't get uh, uh, saved uh, by, because you're affiliated with the, the right family. Um, it's it's a one at a time kind of a relationship that we have with God. Now you can take that too far, and and I think that you were touching on that before with talking about people who absent themselves from church because they can be uh, fed with God's word through the internet, and uh, they they just are spiritual and not religious, or you know goofy things like that. Um, uh, but it but it really does come down to. You, you don't you don't have a relationship with God just because you are affiliated with the right church. You have a relationship with God first, and and then hopefully that would lead to um, purity of purity of doctrine in your church. Yeah, and what you were talking about, Jeremy, I was touching on in my adult confirmation class on Wednesday night when I talked about worship and being involved in the church, and I talked about how. Uh, you can be Christian by yourself if you're just reading your Bible and so forth. And yet, when you're only by yourself, that's when you can get kind of kooky. You know, that you're only by yourself because God has brought us into a church, an ecclesia, a gathering together of those who have been enlightened and saved together. That's the imagery of 10 coins together. That's the imagery of a hundred sheep together. That's the imagery of people in our, uh, in our, in the pews of a church that we're all together. We feed off each other. We encourage one another. We, we eat the bread of life. We drink the, the water of life. We commune and unite together at the Lord's table together. And you just cannot do that on your own it, for very long. Anything else you guys want to bring up with this gospel lesson? Okay, let's get into the epistle lesson. Jeremy, do you want to give some background on the epistle lesson? So the epistle that we'll look at today is from 2 Corinthians 2, chapter 2. Uh, yeah, chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. And uh, there is a case mentioned here, an incident of um, Paul telling people that they should welcome back a sinner who repented of his sin. Um, and so you can see how that fits very nicely with the gospel that we just heard about Jesus seeking and saving the lost sheep and the lost coin, uh, that here is a lost sinner. Uh, here's a, here's a real-life example. Jesus' words were true, but they were, they were parables. They were comparison stories. Here we have uh, an actual example 
of somebody who was lost and and you could even say was at one time a believer and fell away from the faith, it seems. Um, there are uh, differing possibilities of what this individual could be. Uh, one of the popular points of view is that uh, in 1 Corinthians, we hear about a man who had an incestuous relationship with his father's wife, not his mother. It was probably not, it was almost certainly not his mother. Uh, it was, it sounds more like somebody whom his father remarried and he had an affair with. Uh, and um, Paul talks about it very specifically in 1 Corinthians about uh, being a uh, the sexual immorality. Um, well, uh, here in Second Corinthians, we hear about a sinner who had repented, and Paul is telling is going to tell them to welcome this sinner back. Um, and uh, it, it's possible that this is talking about the individual from First Corinthians, uh, or it could just be uh, somebody that personally offended the Apostle Paul or said something offensive about Paul in his. Uh, public statements at church. Um, and at any rate, uh, hopefully that's enough of an introduction for you, and I'll just read these verses. Second Corinthians 2. Now, if anyone has caused sorrow, he has not done it to me, but to all of you to some extent, not to overstate it. This punishment inflicted on such a person by the majority is enough, so that instead you should rather forgive and comfort him, or else such a person could be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. For that reason, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. In fact, this was also the purpose of my writing. I wanted to know the result of your being tested, that is, if you are obedient in all things. If you forgive anyone anything, I do too. To be sure, if I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven it in the presence of Christ for your sake, so that Satan would not take advantage of us. We are certainly not unaware of his schemes. All right, so John, let's assume that it's the first uh, example that Jeremy had mentioned, that this is the man from 1 Corinthians that Paul told the Corinthians, uh, call him to repentance, and now what is he encouraging the Corinthians to do in 2 Corinthians? Well, he's encouraging him to forgive him. Right and 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 uh, move on basically from there to to make him realize that the man is repentant and the man is has has confessed his sin is repentant and uh, so that he doesn't fall into despair right um, the ditch of despair which is one side of uh, when we're thinking about sin um, one of the big ditches we can fall into. Um, is that 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 we're so sorrowful over what we've done that we think God can't forgive me, right? And so they want to make sure that that doesn't happen. That 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 uh, he realizes they he has forgiveness in Christ, uh, no matter what he's done. He's he's forgiven. Yeah, and so he's forgiven in Christ, and so you need to accept him back into the fellowship. So Jeremy, Satan's schemes can twist even the act of repentance into an opportunity to plunge a soul into the depths of despair, like John mentioned. So before, in 1 Corinthians, Paul had warned the Corinthians because they did not want to point out the man's sin. So what does Paul have to warn the Corinthians about now? He has to warn them about uh, harping too much on the wrongdoing. Yeah. Uh, 
so you know the congregation needs to show uh, Christ's love for the lost, and and as I was thinking about this, I was wondering if we haven't in the Christian church done the reverse, you know that here the Corinthians were afraid to point out the sin, and now they're I think Paul is concerned that they're uh, not going to offer the forgiveness after he's repented, and I wonder. If in the history of Christianity in America, if we didn't really come down hard on a sinner in the past generations, and then now we don't, we just kind of overlook the sin, that we kind of just come. Because we, we, we're afraid if we point out someone's sin, well, now we're not going to have them in our pews. And I, so I don't know if you guys want to touch on that at all. If, if that's something that you think maybe is a, a problem that we have in our and us as Christian in Christianity today, in our, in our generation, you think about the cancel culture that's out there with with anything that you might point out that's sensitive in our society. Um, I think, yeah, we're probably going to be more sensitive to it for one, and we're going to maybe kind of tiptoe a little bit more. Um, and and not to say that we we shouldn't, not to say that we shouldn't um, be sensitive about what's going on. But we should not back off from when a sin is committed, when somebody is in a sin, we certainly need to call them out on it, don't we? Yeah, because um, I just yeah. interrupt and then you keep going. I, I just think of a situation where I learned of one of our members, their son had moved in with his girlfriend. So I talked to the parents about it and said, well, did you talk to him about it? And they said... No, we did the same thing when we were his age. I said, oh my goodness, that doesn't make it right. You understand that it's wrong. You should point out that sin. But what, what I'm thinking is in past generations, we were, we were quick to point out that sin, I think rightfully so, and now we're quick to overlook that sin. Or, any, or a lot of cultural sexual sins. Sure. I think that can be very true. Um, it's... It kind of depends too on um, what 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 time uh, what what age you are and and what part of life you're in. Sometime as far as as far as when you feel comfortable in talking to people about their sin. I I guess I I just go back to uh, um, my wife had uh, a friend um, who was getting married. Um, but she knew that she was living with her boyfriend, and uh, they were actually living out of town. They were living in Washington, D.C. at the time, and uh, she, we, we talked about it a number of times, and she finally decided, I'm just going to call her, I'm going to talk to her about it as a loving Christian friend to say, you know, what you're doing is is sinful. And, um, and uh, she did tell her that, and her friend reacted and was kind of hurt, obviously, as we, you know, the law does hurt, certainly. Um, but it, what was interesting is what happened next. And what happened next was that my wife was uninvited to the wedding. You know, and that's, that's oftentimes how people react. It's one, one side or, uh, of that or the other. Um, and uh, she did the right thing. You know, calling, basically presenting her with the fact and just, I care about you, I care about your soul, but um, unfortunately people don't react um, the way that we always hope they would. Um, 
and sin does that to us, doesn't it? It chases us one way or the other, um, either towards God or away from God. And then I think about it too, is that I think this is why you know we work really hard to build relationships with our students. So I was teasing my daughter, Belle, and her friend uh, who picked her up for school last Wednesday when I had chapel at Shoreland. said so I was going to wear my skinny jeans and my untucked plaid shirt uh, to fit in with the kids to have a... So I looked relational, and the kid, the the boy who was picking her up for school, said, "Do you want to borrow my skinny jeans, Pastor?" I said, "No, I'm just teasing." I said, "I really don't care about uh, being relational with you, but I, I do care about having a relationship with you." But I think that's important. Like I I went kayaking with the kids today, our, our seventh graders, and then John, you and I, you know, we read with read to our kids in the in the classrooms. Uh, we're going to be doing a line dance class for our teens in a few weeks. And all of those kind of things that we, we try and build up those relationships. And like you were saying, Jeremy, about getting into the homes of our people. Why? It's because we're the shepherd who really cares about his sheep. We're that lady who really cares about her coins. It's a weird weird picture but we're, we we are that father who really cares about his sons but you have to know the people to be able to do what you're were, you're were talking about katie your wife doing of uh and then having that relationship to be bold enough to talk and then call them to repentance but if you don't have that relationship you can't talk to the kids or talk to anyone it's one of the questions I ask my students in catechism class when we study the Sixth Commandment, and I ask them, well, should you have friends in high school or college when you find out that they're gay? And then they right away say no, because they think that's the right answer. And I said, no, you should have friends. that, If your friends happen to be gay, you shouldn't break off your friendship because they're not going to listen to me as the pastor. They're not going to listen to their parents usually because that's a different age and so forth. They're going to listen to you calling them to repentance because you tr- because they trust you. Now, they may break off that relationship too because no one likes to be told they're doing something wrong. And yet, like the hymn of the day for this Sunday it, that fits with these the theme of these two readings, Jesus sinners does receive as the th- refrain for all six verses. That's the key. Jesus calls us to repentance. And that's the last question I have, Jeremy, is that pointing out the wor- pointing out sin, whether it's the work of us as pastors or church elders or a Christian parent or a Christian fun- uh, friend, that's never fun or easy. And yet, what is the ultimate goal when we point out someone's sin like Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 2 here? Uh, he says that uh, the the goal is that they not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, but uh, that they reaffirm their love for the, the sinner that has repented. Um, the goal is to win win them win the sinner over. Yeah. When I talk about this in my classes, I often illustrate it like if my next door neighbor's house is on fire, but it's two o'clock in the morning. And then my neighbors come out, and I'm standing out there watching the house burn, and they ask me, well, did you wake them up? I said, no, I, I didn't want to be rude. <laughs> okay, that's just silly. That's stupid. And yet, 
isn't the way we deal, the way the culture deals with us, the exact opposite. If we call someone to repentance, knowing not only their house, their life, everything they care about is on fire because they're in living in unrepentance, and, but they're in danger of the fires of hell. Then if we call them out, we try and wake them up, then we're called unloving, right? But so that's our goal. Anything else you guys want to bring up with this lesson or anything of the two lessons together? No? All right. We'll wrap it up here. So this is Michael Zarling with John Reckley and the superhero Green Lightning. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>